episode of the uh, the Going Rogue Gaming Podcast. Uh, I am Scott Berger. I'm joined here with my my two longtime co-hosts of one episode, uh, Colin Smith and Bill Wright. Say hello, everyone. Thanks for having us. <laughs> hello. Uh, yeah, if you're listening to this, this is this is the. Uh, uh, Real uh, shaky uh, first episode that uh, of every podcast that everyone always loves to listen to uh, uh, about uh, games in the genre of roguelikes. Uh, you've probably heard of these if you uh, have played many games recently. There's a it's a it's a growing field, and uh, we thought we would start up a podcast to talk about uh, the uh, the good ones. So um, part of the motivation behind this podcast that you're listening to is that. Uh, this genre of games really kind of exploded over the past decade um, with hit titles uh, like things like The Binding of Isaac and FTL and uh, things like that. And we, I think it, it offers a really rich space for us to, uh, to talk about these kinds of games and their evolution and where, where they've come from and where they're going and all that. Um, and yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll have a good time uh, talking about these games. Uh, the goals for this podcast, like uh, like every good podcast, has to have an objective. Uh, uh, I think our number one goal is to just uh, have fun here and play games that I think uh, we will have fun playing, and some that we might not have fun playing, and uh, get get a chance to dunk on a little bit. Uh, and uh, have an avenue to, to talk about them. Uh, I think another goal is to, to signal boost some lesser known ones. Um, we'll get into, into that a little bit, but uh, there's, there's a wide spectrum of, of games in this genre that are far more popular than others. And I think the ones that uh, happen to be less popular deserve just as much attention. And uh, we'll, we'll come to those when we, when we get there, but... Um, and then uh, finally, another goal is to just uh, rank these games as best we can against each other. There's a lot of different factors going into to a lot of these, um, but which ones do we find the most enjoyable to play? Which ones do we think are, are the most important? Uh, we'll figure out those rankings as, as the podcast uh, trucks along here. Um, yeah, and I think that'll be a little bit of a learning discovery for us as well, because I mean, uh, both Will and I have not played a a huge number of roguelikes so in some ways we'll be learning the genre as we go and so like for the review that we're doing today our opinions on on roguelikes and on the game that we're going to be uh reviewing are a little bit not set in stone yet so <laughs> our thoughts on it are unformed clay we might have much more stinging criticism for things in the future no no <laughs> Mine's all solidified. It's all perfect. There's nothing, you know, no revisions. It's all good to go. <laughs> you already have all of your rankings for, for the games that we're, we're planning Perfectly on playing. Set. Set Come in with preconceptions. Do not change them. <laughs> uh, so, so in this podcast, I think one of our main objectives is to look at maybe like the top, uh, let's say 10-ish asterisk question mark uh, games uh, per year for this decade for the uh, games released between like 2011 and uh, let's say 2021 for now. And if there's enough interest, you know, we can, we can continue rolling that. Um, but there's a lot of roguelike games out there. How many, how many, how many roguelike games do you guys think exist on just Steam at the moment? Probably like a oh, hundred, 120. 
No, I feel like it's like 10,000 because Steam is ridiculous and roguelike games are have a low uh, minimum viable product. Yeah, Colin Colin is closer. Uh, he, he'll win the... Um, God, whatever, whatever the game is. Did I go is. over? The yeah, price is right. Yeah. Here. I'm pretty yeah. sure... <laughs> the uh so so for the rogue is right uh colin is the winner for this one uh there's almost five thousand games on steam that have some kind of roguelike capacity to them uh and i think like it's it's untenable for a podcast to kind of cover all of those uh until we get access to some sort of immortality machine uh so so that kind of helps to constrain our focus a little bit of just focusing on like okay what what are what are like the the best uh shining examples from each of those years. Uh, and from the Steam platform in particular, I think has, you know, like you said, you know, there's a low barrier to entry, let's put it. <laughs> uh, at least now now there is. Uh, we'll we'll kind of see as the history goes on about how that's how that's changed a little bit. But um, but yeah, there's there's a zillion games out there. Uh, Steam, I think, is a good repository because it just has the biggest uh, breadth and maybe depth for this genre. Um, and it, there's a lot of uh, good data out there for us to just kind of like harvest off of like the Steam API and mine that into, into some nice uh, juicy data sets that we can start uh, uh, building stuff out of. Um, for, the, for the audience at home, uh, I'm not going to go through the, the details of this algorithmic selection process because uh, I'm not sure that that's what everyone's tuning in for to hear about algorithms, but uh, but right into the show, and we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about it more if that's something that you're interested in. Um, all of you gentle listeners have to know is that the algorithm is perfect. It has selected the perfect list of games for us to cover, and to argue otherwise uh, is to go against the the nature of the state of the art machine learning techniques that we have employed. The numbers um, do not lie; they <laughs> can't lie. Uh, I think a little bit about uh, the format of this show. Uh, I think each episode will will um, do a little bit of background about uh, the game that the game or games uh, that we'll be talking about for the week. Uh, in some cases, games like have like you know you can see everything about these games in like five minutes or fifteen minutes or something, so it makes sense to bundle them with others that are also similarly short. But for a given episode, I think we'll we'll talk a little bit about like development history, um, maybe a little bit about the developers themselves or publishers if there's some interesting factoids there. Uh, and then we'll just jump into like, what's this game about? What is it like to to play this and our experience playing it? Um, and then, yeah, finally, and then you know we dump it into our uh, our infallible rankings uh, for roguelikes. Uh, so to kick us off, um, let's start with the least controversial topic uh, for this. Uh, what do we think a roguelike is? Like, if someone has never come to this to, to uh, to this genre before and they and they want to know like what is this I'm, I'm super familiar with what first person shooters and racing games are but what what the hell is a roguelike i've said it before and i'll say it again it's like the game rogue from the 1980s oh. a game which we all know and love and well, you're, certainly you're familiar played. with this one right i mean not really <laughs> <laughs> i think i've heard of it i've never played it that's for sure uh-huh what was what was your two like first first exposure to like a game of, of this uh, massive genre? Well, for me, I, I, it's got to be Slay the Spire. I think that's actually been um, 
that was a starting point for me in like being fascinated by this genre in, in, in particular, but also just like studying games and trying to figure out like what is the essence of fun. And so roguelike have, has this kind of this amazing uh, uh, property to it where the variability in the gameplay and what makes the engagement lose happen is really uh, closely associated with uh, the variation in the run and just doing it over and over again and having there be a lot of unpredictability around that. So a lot of surprise is just baked into the game design, which I think is what sets it apart from pretty much everything else where you're going down like a, a linear story or something like that, where it's just the gameplay develops, you get stronger, enemies get stronger, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think for me, it was FTL. Um, that's the first game that I played that had that same sort of branching path where you don't really know. There's not a, there's not a story in the traditional sense. You are getting random events and you aren't expected to beat it on the first try, especially, and maybe not really ever. Like there are certainly, it, it is rare that I win a game when I'm playing FTL and it's probably because I'm not very good at it but e even having played a number of hours it's you know you're just trying to, to uh, unlock certain things you're trying to get different paths you can there's a, there's a, a lot of replayability which I think is always interesting I mean the the goal of the genre is replayability like play a single playthrough means nothing that the, the game is playing through it multiple times versus there's so many other games where after you've played through it once, you have done that game. I mean, it's like rereading a book. Many people do it, many people love it, but you're not going to get a different book out of it. Um, if you play FTL twice, it's a different book. Mm -hmm. I think um, for me, I I don't know if I came to, to roguelikes through Dwarf Fortress, but that feels right. And I think that like, well, it's, I think Dwarf Fortress is kind of like that extreme hobby grade end of the spectrum of the, of roguelikes. And then I think like the thing that really like. It's got its... the roguelike aesthetic. In a lot yeah, of that's right. Um, but like the 2013 version of Spelunky, I think is what did it for me in terms of like, and I think that like at this time, uh, like Dark Souls had recently just come out. So there was like that added fervor of like, you know, games are hard and that's cool again, right? So something like Spelunky kind of, you know, like what if Mario was more Dark Souls? And like, oh, okay, like I could get behind that. And yeah, like you said, like the randomization aspect, like, oh, everything, every run, every time that you play the game, it's slightly different. So it's, you have to kind of adapt uh, your strategy and, and, and all that to it. Um, uh, yeah, uh, some quick uh, facts about uh, roguelikes on on Steam. Uh, of all of the, the roughly 5,000 uh, games that are, uh, have tags related to uh, rogue type things, 66% um, are defined uh, have a tag that's a rogue like. There's 62% of them that have something that's tagged a rogue light. And this is this is where I think we almost need to uh, have a bunch of like linguistics people or like Linnaean classification specialists right into the show to be like, we need to fix this. Um, Forty-three percent of all of the uh, of the games on Steam are action roguelikes. We have, uh, and then like we start to jump off a cliff here. We're like, four, only four point three percent of them have tags related to roguelike deck builders. So you're kind of slave aspire types. 
there are 4.1% of them are traditional roguelikes, which we'll get into uh, at some point. And then 2% are roguevanias. <laughs> uh, Will's, Will's kind of going that a like, dog at the... Is that basically just like side-scroller, but rogue? Um, we'll get to it, but like uh, Dead Cells is a good example of this. Oh, okay. Where it's, it's, it has that kind of like side-scrolling platformer... Um, I don't know if a whip is required for that tag to be applied, but you know that kind of like certainly helps. <laughs> yeah, like Vampire Survivors is like that's got to be one of those, right? I mean, no, I don't think so because it's that's top down. That's a yeah. Oh, okay. But I yeah, feel like so... the, the the Roguevania. I mean, that's like Metroidvania mm. is another genre. It's it's the the side scroll platforming with variations of weapons and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we never really did talk, though. I, I I flippantly said they're like Rogue, but we didn't really explain what, what the genre is. I mean, I know for, for me, it's it's the randomization. That is the the core of the genre, and I think that will push the bounds of the genre a lot because there are a lot of games that have randomization that it's, it's, it's a hard thing to categorize if just randomizing is enough to make it a roguelike um i know the previous starting the podcast we have talked about is diablo a roguelike (laughs) i don't think it is even though it does have some trappings of that in it in its like there are there's there's randomization you're not getting the exact same thing every time i don't think it quite it quite meets the 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 qualifications but it's getting closer Yeah, I think the the definitions of what goes into this kind of uh, game type are now super nebulous, and they used to be pretty well defined before. But I think a, a goal for this podcast, I don't think, is for us to kind of like be exclusionary or say like this game is definitely roguelike, this one is not. Uh, and I th- and the the algorithm has decided for me uh, to cast a very uh, wide net uh, to include things that may or may not be like roguelikes in the traditional sense, but have those kinds of um, gameplay elements. So, like you were talking about, like randomization, procedural generation of yeah. elements of the game. Um, like every time you boot it up, like oh, like the, the map will be different this time. Um, per- high degree of death is a yeah, I was just about to say, like, permadeath and, like, high degree of difficulty to um, enforce a- as a means of enforcing, like, um, an evolution of your play style instead of just, like, okay, like, I'm just going to restart my same character over and over again. It can't and... just be a sneaky archer in Skyrim every single time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, and I think that um, the... The 1980 game Rogue is super fascinating from like a historical perspective um, because it it's it really kind of lays the groundwork of like like this whole like separate world of how games were developed back then, how you interface with them, and like having to develop. Uh, I think they were like packages wrote, written in the in the C programming language that allowed you to have like maneuver a character around a screen like that didn't exist prior to it like 1980 that's not too far from the moon landing right i mean 
Like, I'm like trying to figure out when when mice for computers became popular because it's like about that same time. Yeah, uh, the mouse definitely came out after, uh, which I think would would partly inspire and explain why all those uh, ye old uh, ultra super um, ancient rogues, you know, you were basically using like Emacs style keyboard commands <laughs> to to get around, and you know. Uh, maybe maybe that explains the the popularity of Vin these days, but um, but yeah. So I think uh, I think we might finally have time to to jump into our first game. Finally, let's do it. Uh, so so preamble. Uh, we can come back to some of those things as the podcast goes on. Uh, I know everyone's dying to hear more about uh, Bayesian selection out, uh, optimization algorithms, but, um, let's, let's maybe, uh, yeah, start with our first game. Uh, you're listening to this, uh, we're going to be talking about the 2011, uh, release Dungeons of Dreadmore. Um, this I think is actually like a really good game. Uh, this and like the next few episodes are, are really good games to kind of like set the stage for what roguelikes were at the time. And also like the, the breadth of this category. So um, at this time in 2011, uh, when this game was released, this genre of like turn-based, uh, grid-based movement, uh, going into dungeons, like those kinds of games were largely dominated by, um, or that, that genre was largely dominated by games like NetHack, Dungeon Crawl, Stone Soup, and like I mentioned before, uh, Dwarf Fortress. Um, I know. I think Will has played Dwarf Fortress. Colin, I think you've played Dwarf Fortress a little bit, also. Have, yeah. have you guys played any of the other two, NetHack and Dungeon Crawl? Not the other two. Yeah, just I looked Fortress. into playing NetHack, but did not do it. <laughs> I tried I playing. Play... Yeah, go ahead. I played. I don't want to say a fair amount of Dwarf Fortress because I know that that isn't <laughs> true relative to the people who have actually played Dwarf Fortress. But I have, I have played enough of it to know how interesting it can be. I like the stories that come out of it a lot more than the actual act of playing it. Um, and I am eagerly awaiting the Steam uh, the Steam release of it so that they finally have some uh, some better interface for it. Wait, mm-hmm. did, you, did you ever go too deep? Uh, no, I don't think I ever got that deep. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think I, I think I gave it a fair shake too, but maybe a fairer shake in that sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, watch. I mean, I don't know how many tens of hours of uh, of tutorials were part of that, but that's a whole. That's a whole. Other yeah, thing. I feel like my my Dwarf Fortress plays ended up just being like watching videos of other people playing right. Dwarf Fortress, <laughs> that was, which was that also was entertaining. 50, 50. Yeah, um, that's half the fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 2011 kind of dominated by this landscape of and of, of games of that ilk, and you could argue in a way, and this you know. This uh, might be things that part of things that we cover later in the podcast. Um, that you know the explosion. I think Minecraft was released uh, two years before this, and the original version of Spelunky uh, was released in two thousand eight. So we're kind of turning a corner game development history wise of um, these these really like popular old school uh, ASCII based uh, rogue like games very much inspired by the 1980 ye old classic road net hack dungeon crawl door fortress arguably um 
starting to move into the direction of like, well, how do we make this more popular for you know the general audience? I don't know that NetHack is is something that you know your average person on a bus would would be playing on their on their switch or anything, but um, but yeah, that was that I think a, a major kind of inspiration for the the developers of this game. Uh, but let's jump into it. So Dungeons of Dreadmore released uh, July thirteenth, two thousand eleven. Uh, it is a kind of like a top-down, like two-thirds perspective uh, game where you're controlling a character walking around the eponymous dungeons of Lord Dreadmore. Uh, you can find this on Windows, Mac, Linux, uh, and it was uh, developed and published uh, by Victoria BC-based uh, uh, game developers Gaslamp, Gaslamp Games. Uh, these were, I think at the time, three, three guys up in Victoria. Um, and actually, I think a, a surprising number of games in this genre, uh, will, I think we'll find out, have been developed by people in the, uh, in the Puget Sound slash Seattle metro area. Bunch um, of nerds. Did you, did you guys know that uh, the developers of Dwarf Fortress live around the Seattle area? No. Slay Aspire 2. Yeah, uh, I think we'll, we'll find that uh, the Seattle area, so uh, for gentle listeners context, uh, we are all scattered around the Seattle area. Um, hence our kind of fascination with people who, who are uh, developers from here. But yeah, I think we'll, we'll find out that like areas that are major tech hubs also uh, are, are major video game hubs. Maybe, maybe not to so much of a surprise, but um, Gaslamp Games, uh, three guys, Nicholas Vining, the technical director, Daniel Jacobson, the CEO, and David Baumgart, the art director, uh, all joined forces. I think they were previous game developers who, who all kind of like joined forces to say, hey, we should make a roguelike game, um, but we should make it accessible. <laughs> uh, the development history for this game uh, and for Gaslamp, um, I think they they kind of hit it out of the park with, with Dreadmore when it released in 2011. Um, in December 2011, they released their first expansion, Curse of the Diggle Gods. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to Diggles in a moment, uh, a, a great little character. And then uh, June 2012, uh, they came out with, uh, it's free now. I don't know if it launched free, but um, you can download this, or yeah, you can install this one for free. Uh, June 2012, the, the DLC titled, You Have to Name the Expansion Pack, uh, which I thought was fun. Um, and then August 2012, their their final expansion for this game, Conquest of the Wizard Lands. Um, Gaslamp in 2016 would start work on their next game, Clockwork Empires, but didn't, I don't think it was as commercially successful as Dreadmore. Uh, that was put on hiatus. And unfortunately in 2019, the studio uh, was, was shuttered permanently. All their stuff kind of put on hiatus. Um, Nicholas Vining, the technical director, would wind up going back to finish his doctorate in computer science at the University of Victoria uh, and, you know, work for Google and NVIDIA and, and all that fun stuff. And most of the others went to go work on a game called Star Sector. Have, have either of you heard of this? Can't say that uh, I have. Wait. What's the, the one? Is Star Sector the one that's like Terraria? No, I think I know. That's Star, Starbound. Starbound. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah. Okay then I have not heard of Star Sector. Star Sector uh, is an open world space, single player space combat role-playing exploration and economic game. Um, from what I can tell from the website, I think it's kind of like a, a, um, 
4X inspired space game, but this is something, and this is, I think, a game that props up on my radar like once every six months of like, oh yeah, that looks cool, but they have yet, like never put anything out on Steam yet. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll like, quickly forget about it. Oh um, yeah, that's that's hard. I, I, <laughs> it's not on Steam. I'm less likely to see it for sure. Yeah. Uh, in an interview with uh, with the magazine RPG Watch, uh, game artist Dave Baumgart explained that the game is based on a quote immature build of a humorous roguelike game, uh, which gave uh, the programmer Nicholas Vining uh, he had been working on since about 2006. Um, he also noted the game's art sets uh, the game apart from other traditional roguelikes that feature ASCII graphics. So like what we kind of mentioned before, NetHack and Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup. I think Dungeon Crawl these days does have like a graphical UI, um, but it is very kind of like tile-based and NetHack is very traditionally, you know, your, your standard kind of Dwarf Fortress fair of like a confetti of apostrophes and commas all over the screen and almost, almost like modern day hieroglyphics. Um, but yeah, they were, I think they were inspired by, uh, they've said in interviews that they were inspired by this 1995 game called Lindley's Dungeon Crawl. And that kind of inspired them to say like, well, yeah, what would a roguelike that was actually accessible be like? So something that you could, you could use the, the mouse and your computer to fully control instead of just like, you know, clacking away on, on your keyboard. Um, originally, the game didn't have any numbers in it. Wait, like for anything? I think for for basically anything. Like so, for like stat values, like damage, damage things, damage types, and all that. Uh, I, from what I understand, I think like they only added those in about two thirds through the way of development. Did they just I mean, say they were... like "ouch" <laughs> and like a larger "ouch"? Well, I guess like <laughs> um, in the game, like when you're attacking monsters and stuff, it doesn't actually show like a number value for how much damage that you did. But there are like stat screens that say like, oh, your burliness is 23 or things like that. I think they they added that in pretty late uh, into development. But um, but when the game was uh, released on Steam and at the time, like nowadays, like, you know, any any person with a with a, a you know fat check in their uh, wallet can release a game on Steam. But back then, you had to know someone who knew someone to get your game on Steam. In the world of 2011, 11 right. years they ago, only, they only opened it up in like 2008 for people to, for all, all like the green light, green light stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting. Like playing it, I'm looking at it from an 11 year later development perspective, and it feels old, but looking at the contemporary games that it was uh being surrounded by it's like oh okay yeah i can see where this is an innovation in that uh like as compared to a game that has ascii graphics it has <laughs> amazing graphics and user interface mm -hmm. the fact that you can click on something is yeah and this game was super popular when it was released on steam at the time this thing actually sat on like the bestseller list for like three weeks, which to look back on it now is is like a monumental slam dunk of like, oh my God, like this is something that's more in like this niche territory that you're, you know, fighting against like Counter-Strike, you're fighting against like, you know, your calls Portal of duties, you know, your, your portals, uh, that something like this could jump in and people 
like seem seem to have a a, a decent amount of interest in it. Um, and yeah, I think the, the developers were also saying that at the time in 2011 dollars, I don't know if this was Canadian dollars, but they said that they had a budget of about two to three thousand dollars to develop this thing, which when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's actually, I think, pretty impressive. That just means that they were, like that money was just like to pay for like fees and things for like incorporating their company and like because they were taking no salary, obviously. They were not like they were just developing this as a kind of their like their own thing, right? Yeah. I mean, that's to me, that just says they're doing it in their spare time. Right. Which is still impressive then. <laughs> Maybe even more so. Um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's jump into it. Like Dungeons of Dreadmore, I've uh, gotten the history out of the way. Uh, the first thing that you're greeted with when you, when you boot this up is a character with uh, shockingly huge eyebrows, which- Huge. <laughs> And and we're not joking when we say huge eyebrows. Like this is They're this is like two thirds of, of your face. head. Yeah, quite the uh, quite the eyebrows. Um, and uh, I love the uh, the intro text that uh, that when you when you start a new game it says once more it is a time of adventure of glory. It is time for a hero. Unfortunately, this hero is you. You have been summoned by the king to prove yourself to save the land and its people to join the heroes of legend in victory over the dungeons of Dreadmoor. Uh, so your, your objective in this game is to traverse 10 floors, uh, 15 with an expansion, but 10 floors uh, to get to the very bottom and fight Lord Dreadmoor himself uh, for ultimate victory. And along your way, you're gonna uh, encounter all sorts of wacky objects. Uh, you're going to be boosting up your stats and skills like you do in any in any good uh, fantasy setting. Uh, there's there's a lot of crafting that I have yet to figure out. <laughs> uh, there's zillions of items just kind of littering the floor all over the place, and um, all sorts of crazy enemies. Uh, objects things that that you run across in this game i think the maybe one of the first objects i came across in this game that i was like raising my enormous eyebrows at were vending machines right yeah so that it's like definitely out of place for everything else which is like all thematic i think it's kind of had a nordic sort of a theme to it with the uh what was it the the fish that they had the the loot fisk yeah, yeah. loot fisk right and all all that fun stuff mm -hmm. yeah i think like that that kind of sets the irreverent tone of the game mm -hmm. where right. i think like their their overall objectives for this game were something that's like funny accessible and you know you, you can have a good time like blowing up monsters in and i think they kind of like slam dunked on that goal because like if the first thing that you're encountering in some like fantasy slash steampunk dungeon is a vending machine, that kind of got a, a you know a chuckle out of me the first time I saw it. But um, you have uh, uh, upgrade stations like the Anvil of Krong, uh, great name. Uh, you have uh, things that you can go and pick up side quests at called the uh, the Statue of Inconsequentia, which I thought mm -hmm. was fun. Uh, there's there's just like a straight up 2001 monolith floating around on some of the floors, which I've yet yep. to figure out how to how to activate those but i think those are used for side quests right yeah yeah but you yeah eventually you, you sacrifice some kind of thing you pick up to fight a boss basically it's always the same it's very repetitive <laughs> uh there are there are statues to uh to lord dreadmore uh scattered about that you get a uh, big experience boost if you if you smash those and a little a little notification of heroic vandalism which i thought was fun um, i did get worried the first time that i broke one 
that it was like you get a thing and you're going to get punished later and then eventually realize like oh right dreadmore's the guy that we're fighting so breaking this is like like i'm not a vandal i'm like a good i am a good vandal you're supposed to be breaking them Although with the uh, the propaganda posters that are that are littered throughout the game, kind of paint point uh, paint you to be a bad guy in a fun sense of like you know this home wrecker has come into the dungeon, he's like screwing everything up, and you know you got to go into you you diggles that inhabit this uh, this dungeon, you got to go and uh, destroy the eyebrowed one as you reference uh, several times. Um, there's lots of satanic displacement glyphs around that uh, that will teleport you to random parts of the floor levers, chests, uh, bookshelves that you pick up crafting materials from. Um, stats, there's there's a lot of stats uh, <laughs> in this game. And I think I, I only kind of understand maybe like 25% of them, but I think that's that's part of like the comedic tone is that instead of, you know, your, your traditional stats of like um, strength, wisdom, dexterity, uh, you have things like burliness, sagacity, nimbleness, savvy, stubbornness, uh, Things like that, which I think is kind of a, a, a cute take on it. Um, there's a lot of skills in this game. There are many a skills. And when you first boot this game up, you're you're going to have to pick seven starting skills that kind of define what your, your skill tree is for the game. Did you guys have a have a uh, synergy or set build that, that you liked more than others? Well... I mean, the, my first playthrough was as like the traditional warrior. I figured I'm going to go in. I don't know what's going to happen. So to be a mage, mages feel like you kind of have to know the intricacies a little more. And so I'm just like, give me the the beefiest guy with the armor and everything. And I managed to pick uh, something that I guess resulted in some kind of synergy. I had no idea because you can't actually see what the skill tree is below anything. You're just kind of like blindly guessing like these look warrior-esque and you know you don't want to mix your warrior with your wizard or rogue skills you're kind of like confined to like one third of all the skills that are available and um it, it ended up working out i mean on my first playthrough at the i guess the medium default difficulty i, I got up to that uh um uh, dreadmore um got absolutely swamped by him but uh it uh seemed to work out yeah i also did a warrior-based build but i was uh, maybe more of a D&D barbarian style. So, like I didn't do any of the armor things because I wanted my, my, my it, you know, in my head, he's a shirtless barbarian running around just hitting things with a hammer. Um, so, I mean, I did put armor on him because I don't think you can play the game without it. But uh, yeah, I did hammer, viking, uh, smithing, mushrooms. Because eventually mushrooms. you just had to you had to add some stuff in. I was like, oh, mushrooms are kind of cool too. Maybe it's maybe they're like magic mushrooms. Like that's a cool. Like I'm sure Vikings did that. So uh, that was a weird, definitely a weird flavor in there. Uh, just like things, just like my inventory is filled with ingots of ore and just 15 different kinds of mushrooms because I <laughs> can't bring myself to drop them. Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, items in terms of like mushrooms. There's like twenty different kinds of wine. Uh, sometimes I think that that makes it uh, tough decision wise to, to figure out like, okay, do I want to keep a merlot or do I want to go for the chardonnay over here? And I'm having to almost do a bunch of like wine tasting in the game to figure out like, okay, this one will boost my mana the most. I should keep that. Um, 
the I think the the skills themselves are are hilarious and interesting in how different they are from like your kind of traditional um almost kind of like Skyrim-y fantasy game where uh, there was one I was just tinkering around with it last night where I'm like oh this one has has like a a leap to it like I I figured that could be useful to like you know either get away from enemies or jump into the middle middle things um I think it was called like nightly leap or something or like nightly jump and I couldn't figure out how to use it at first and I felt like an idiot for like five minutes I'm like okay like I want to jump from here to there why are you not jumping until I figured out it is an L pattern like on a chessboard oh. <laughs> and that, okay, that kind that's of pretty, that's pretty good I yeah, like that like that kind of eye rolling groan like the initial like frustration of like the few minutes that it took me to figure out like how, why that needed to work the way that it did as soon as I got the joke I'm like okay that's that's the kind of humor <laughs> that I think plays well in this game yeah um, and I think the humor like especially like thinking back to the world of 2011 i think this was solidly within the like humor of the time um a little bit more of the 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 randomness element to it uh which i think has faded away in the popular culture a little bit by now but i can see how this could be an extremely refreshing take on the like very serious dungeon crawl uh genre up to this point it's like oh this is this is the same but different if you know what i mean mm -hmm. i mean that's that's peppered all throughout too and just like as another point to that like the the obvious fireball is the name of the fireball because <laughs> you have to have a, you have a mage you have a, a you know a pyromancy you have to have the obvious fireball thing and like all all the monsters and their little quibs about you because they like say things to you while you're fighting them with like hero come out to play and just like that kind of thing it's just it's great i i love that uh, uh that they had such a good variety in there and uh, and when you're leaving it's just like it's this you know please don't go sort of like things like begging you not to leave and just one more run and like, no i don't have eight more hours here please <laughs> some of the uh the the goofy um some of the goofy skills that I have yet to try out, uh, but sound amazing. Uh, Colin, I think you mentioned Viking wizardry already. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I think, actually, I don't know if I picked Necronomicon, the uh, Necro, oh my God, okay. Economics, Necronomicon, combined, I'll, I'll try this slowly, Necronomiconomics. <laughs> there's one, uh, I think this this one I think is from, uh, one of the DLCs, but Werdigal Curse. Uh, there's one Battle Geology. Uh, there's Piracy. And of course, everyone's favorite uh, skill to select, Communist. Wait, is that from one of the DLCs that we didn't play? I don't remember I, th Communist. I think it might be because, yeah, I, I think we were all, we were all, well, I installed the, um, the free DLC. Um, I've yet to name my expansion, but I, I don't think I saw Communist in there, but now... I'm super curious to. Oh, you to... know, I would have picked communist. <laughs> <laughs> just, just because, like, what does that even mean in the context of a dungeon crawling game? Exactly. I mean, are you giving are you giving the money back to the diggles? <laughs> yeah, maybe we should Whatever. explain what, what what is a diggle. There's there's lots of enemies in this game. One of which, a class of which, are diggles. But what are they? How would you describe these these things? Pokemon. 
it's it's sort of yeah it's got like a it's just like it's the the thing you fight exclusively in a tutorial as like a getting started and then like it's kind of your low level enemy essentially like you, you kind of see him throughout but uh yeah what is he got? he's got like a big old like drill for a nose and he just kind of looks like a little like uh yeah some kind of a small pokemon with little arms and legs and he just kind of jumps out of the ground at you and makes funny noises <laughs> i'm gonna say he's like a charmander except with no flame on his tail and his his mouth is a drill <laughs> i think but there's those... like many different flavors of them yeah yeah they're um i think diggles are kind of like the unofficial mascot of the dreadmore game because the uh the dlc when i installed it has a different splash screen when you first uh when you first boot it up and it has like statues of like buff diggles like flexing in the background and like them flying all over the place and just kind of like being the the poster child of this uh goofy cartoonish charm that the game has all over but yeah there's uh various enemy types like things like blobbies blob blobular kind of enemy with big googly eyes on it diggles that we've kind of talked about already uh there's there's baddies bats there's uh grim reapers that just walk around with scythes uh i thought that was an interesting choice to just have multiple grim reapers um there's zombies there are you're kind of like class, classic uh, gins. Uh, there's things like octos, which I think are, uh, <laughs> I don't even really know how to describe some of these things. They're kind, they're kind of, they look like they're from uh, Zelda, right? Like the, the little things that pop out of the water and shoot water at you, except yeah, they're on land and they shoot like, you know, magic at you. And don't they have like little like fishbowl helmets on or something, if I'm remembering right? Uh, I don't think they had the fishbowl helmet. I think they're just like a, like a squid basically sort of a, a head to them okay maybe I'm oh, maybe, maybe that's just like the color of their head but i'm looking at the sprite and I, it it looks like a an octopus head and maybe like a cloak of some sort so maybe yeah, it's, it's like the, a wizard mm -hmm. yeah you got your uh your unfriendly ais of uh oh that was my favorite <laughs> tread based the uh, murderous robots uh when they when they hit you too they, they say time to die time to die <laughs> and that was like my like my favorite thing uh, Elys, which will live in uh, in water and uh, leap out Loch Ness monster style at you. Uh, there's there's like scarecrows with pumpkins for heads that run around. Um, the golems, which were my personal least favorite, they just surround you and smash at you for a while. What, what what's uh, what's your guys' opinions on thrusties? Oh, he okay. Uh, I mean, for people that have ever got or like got into One Punch Man, there's a, a creature. It's like what's he the the something sperm, the black sperm. That's whatever. It, he looks just like him. I, I'm I'm surprised that like <laughs> it feels like that was pulled from this game potentially because they just like very very similar to each other. And he's got a little like a little like a uh, hip movement there where he's kind of thrusting at you. And uh, <laughs> I tell you what, it's very provocative. And of course, uh, so so you you encounter. I think the um, enemy. How do I describe this? Pacing question mark is very good in this, where they don't throw like all of those monster types at you on the first floor. Uh, I think they kind of like sprinkle them in as you get further and further in. But they they kind of do like palette swaps of you know versions that you've seen previously. But now they're they're like super blobbies and. Uh, what are they? Diggle commandos that are that are like cloaked that will follow you around and attack you. That, that I thought that was a uh, that was pretty fun. Um, and I think like most of these can also be summoned too, right? Like they, you can summon them as as uh, like pets. I, I was playing around with. Um, I didn't play any of the summon summon builds. 
Oh, uh, yeah, the, the, I think Will was alluding to uh, the pyromancy one where you can summon like a little flying dragon who just wrecks everything. Yeah, the first like three levels, amazing. Fourth level starts questionable and then he's just garbage basically. <laughs> I was using a lot of the, um, I did a, I think I did a pyromancer build first, but um, I was using that, uh, the little flying dragon guy and the, uh, was it like Gog's tactical pyre? Which is just like a, like a single unit flame thing, and that that just ruins people too, which is great. Um, you know what else ruins people though is a flail and very strong arms, <laughs> just running and hitting things. I felt like in some ways, having done the like barbarian style build first, uh, I I missed a good chunk of the strategy of the game yeah. because. Uh, I had no strategy. It was just run and charge and make sure you don't get surrounded. Like I didn't really have to do much in the way of tactics. Uh, I could almost ignore mana for the most part. Um, you, you use mana at all on mine. I had no mana. I had one skill that I all, never used. And so my, I literally would just run in, click guys, they would die. And I was basically invincible. And it was I like, had, oh, some, of the, some of the Viking stuff had mana. So mm. like, it was like a boost on damage uh, that was useful. Um, but generally I was like mana, like I wasn't, mana was not a limiting resource for me. Um, and I think that, that definitely was a less, I mean, it was, it was effective, but probably a less interesting gameplay style because like I play games to make the choices. Like I'm not, like, I'm not having fun just clicking on the enemy like i want to have it like be some sort of like puzzle especially a game like this where it's not real time so there's no there's no reaction skill involved uh so really the decisions are the game um i think having having something that lets you interact with the world a little bit more is probably a better build style for getting enjoyment out of the game um and also there were just so many items that i couldn't I didn't I didn't really use and I couldn't figure out uh my biggest complaint with the game is that the icons were very small mm. and I had a hard time like at a glance knowing which one was which like the uh, and you you know hover you're trying to hover over it and it just it just shows you the little icon under the item you're like which which thing is that again do I care <laughs> about that one yeah. do uh, I want more I, blues or do I want like whatever the orange or is that a, a an auburn square some of the colors look pretty similar too like which orange is that I mean, it was built in 2011, right? So the, the average resolution at the time was microscopic <laughs> compared to what we're running. And so all the UI just looks terrible on these screens. And so, yeah, I, I noticed that as well. And like, I had to like learn to expand the map out and learn to like- um, Right, yeah. Like before I'm just like, I can't, I have no idea. That's totally useless up there in the standard format. And I didn't even realize there was a button to expand it because it was so tiny. It didn't mm -hmm. even look like an expansion button. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that definitely helps. I will say uh, I was kind of glad to have gotten uh, my Steam Deck uh, with enough like runway time to kind of test it out, test Dreadmore out on there, which I was actually like surprised at how well it played on there. And like, despite like the UI being like painfully tiny, at least on desktop, like 1440p, like I, I almost needed a microscope to see what was happening. Like on the Steam Deck, it actually like worked pretty well. And like, there's a lot of like click dragging kind of that you have to do like you can 
Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but if like you do like shift click, it just automatically puts it into your inventory. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. I didn't I realize that. Went, there's, there's a there's a setting in the game where you just like if you get near stuff, you just pick it up. Mm-hmm. That was that was a game game changer for me. Like I don't want to pick things up. I just want <laughs> them to be in my inventory and then I go sell them. Go to the pocket dimension in order to store it too. Like that that was an innovation in this game that I think was incredible that was a really good idea and i think that they um deserve some credit for that one so so what do you use the pocket dimension for exactly i thought it was just like i didn't really know what it was and i just like walked i clicked on it i'm like oh i'm in a different room now i'll go back to where i was before i'm not quite sure what to do here yeah no it just it, it freezes time and so you go into this realm where you can't eat or drink anything so you can't get any more mana or health but you can store things and so you just basically like if you're overburdened, you go up or, you know, if your inventory is full, you just that's where you store all your ore. beam it in. And then just I had one pile that was like my two cell pile, one pile, which was like my here's my mana things. Here's my health things. Before I was like kind of like scattering it all out so I could see everything and kind of get an understanding. But then I'm like, no, no, no. Giant piles of things with our multipurpose is the way to do it because it's really fast. And um, then you can save things and because you don't know if they're going to be useful later. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because like a lot of um, when you throw stuff on the ground, it stays there. Like it doesn't decay. It doesn't like, you know, run away after a certain number of turns. And like the concept of like, yeah, like I I, I kept trying to figure out like, how the hell do I do all this crafting with like such limited inventory space? And the concept of like, oh, I just go into the pocket dimension, throw it on the floor never occurred to me until just now. Right. No, I, I didn't realize that until like after my first playthrough and when I mean, I did a, I kind of like played it once fresh and then I did a little bit of light reading about like, how do you play this game effectively? And it's like, oh, here's one of the big obvious things like, great. They really didn't, they should have mentioned that in the, you know, somewhere in the game because no idea that that was a thing. I do want to, I have a bullet point here uh, to shout out the, uh, the music in this game, I think also kind of helps with that, like irreverent um, attitude like set dressing of like yeah this this like crazy dungeon does feel like a a suitable location for light loungy jazz music i would i muted it pretty much right away i was (laughs) i was like watching a show basically while playing because it's you know turn-based or whatever so i'm just like no i gotta be i can't be listening to this music for for hours the music was fine (laughs) i do like the fact that it has has that kind of like um, I mean, for a game that was developed in, you know, the early 2010s, it has that kind of like uh, late 90s kind of like adventure game, yeah. like MIDI tone to it, definitely. Which which feels it feels very very kind of like warm mug of cocoa, you know, just ah, oh, this is like a nice kind of background music you can sort of slip into. And yeah, like if you're if you're you know like me playing it on the couch you know muted so you can listen to the you know watch the local news at night it you know the game works perfectly fine like that is kind of like you know you're listening to your favorite roguelike podcast huh huh while playing uh playing (laughs) this game on the bus or something um yeah i think uh i think the the music is worth uh shouting out i think like the the art style i think we've kind of talked about like the aesthetic but like the actual like art direction is is I think like fun and like the little skill boxes having like your, you know, your berserker skill is just like a close up cartoon of like the character screaming, I think like gets the point across very well. It's very aesthetically consistent. Like they did a good job. Like it didn't work 
like it, it wasn't my favorite art style, but it was well executed. Like they, it was very tonally consistent, even in the parts where it was inconsistent. Like it was consistently irreverent. Um, all of the, all of the little art icons were uh, goofy in this similar way um, that like helped like synergize with itself. Uh, and I can imagine if you like that, you would really like that. Like it, it builds on itself well. Right. But I mean, like I, I have had this, this game, I probably bought this like um, six months ago and I haven't played it because I looked at that icon and I see those eyebrows and I'm like, I hate this art. I <laughs> cannot stand how ugly this looks. And when you get to the game, you know, I, to be fair, I mean, I think it's, it's a good, it's, it's a quality game, but uh, man, I, uh, the fact that the character doesn't actually wear the things yes that like because i i'm teching out this this mage or this this is this uh this warrior i want to see the main character and this is probably because they had a two or three thousand dollar budget <laughs> like was mentioned but like that was the one thing that kind of bothered me it was like i don't care if you're using a generic weapon or whatever but at least look like a, a warrior if you're a warrior just the class not anything else but they didn't even get to that so it was just like the generic dude doing the generic moves all over the place that mm, was kind of a pretty pretty lame as far as the art goes i had for a long time a one-armed leather jacket and i was very disappointed that my my little sprite man was not wearing a sweet leather jacket and like a goofy hat I mean, if Rocket League has anything, is that people want to <laughs> express their individuality <laughs> through their, yes. their their appearance. Uh, so really, I mean, what they what they should let do me for pay Dreadmore, for hats. <laughs> yeah, they uh, Dreadmore Two needs to have a uh, an item shop, is what you're saying. Dreadmorer, just let you wear the <laughs> Dread, item. Dreadmost, yeah. excuse me. Uh, yeah, I think like for me, the things that I wish could have been done better, like I felt like the maps were like way too big. And I, I say this as like a Cogmind enthusiast that like, oh man, this feels like way too big. And that like, there didn't, there didn't feel to be like, um, the monsters were, were kind of different between each floor, but that was kind of about it. Like if the, if like the sandstone of the second floor was the same as kind of like the, um, the wood pilings of the third floor, then like, like what else is there to really differentiate other than just kind of like, you know, a different design of the stuff that you're walking on um and i think well also this may have been exacerbated by me playing on the the no time to grind mode because i was like okay i just want to like let's let's speed this along let's just like get to floor 10 and even even with this mode on that uh limits the size of each dungeon floor considerably i still haven't gotten past like floor six or seven just because it takes so long like uh on that mode, I think uh, monster zoos are still on every floor. So, uh, you know, you, you kick open a door and, you know, a very aptly named monster zoo awaits you. Um, you do get an achievement for for beating it, though. So I think that's nice. But um, I was only... disappointed that there wasn't like a treasure chest in there. I mean, like... once you once you clear it, the, 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 the random sort of like from there's a screen that says, here's your item for clearing it. Mm -hmm. What? Maybe I didn't actually clear it. Yeah, so sometimes you have to like they, they run away or there's an underground one or something. I've mm -hmm. oh uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what, yeah. You have to make sure that no, there are no survivors <laughs> from the monster zoo in order to get your reward. Um, but uh, what's your guys' take on like the 
like half of your character being like blocked off sometimes like view wise as you're walking behind things oh that was lame i mean like there was <laughs> i mean okay so traps are one of the my biggest complaints with this game to be honest like traps were like put in there it felt like to make the rogue a viable like player because otherwise there's like no reason if you have a trap behind a wall or behind like hidden underneath all you all your only notification is like a slight glimmer and so you mm -hmm. hit them all the time and like traps were like why i died um, in almost all of my runs where i didn't put points into perception and so that's why i maxed that out basically but uh really really annoying stuff and i, I think that like yeah having the wall the wall just kind of give you a semi visibility would have done so much work there because some passageways you couldn't even tell was really a passageway until you like walked through it yeah i think the the wall blocking thing was maybe my biggest criticism just because yeah like you said traps are basically impossible to see there's like a, a bouncing red arrow to indicate that like there's an enemy there but like i don't know i i, I think like there's there's a lot of lessons that have been learned since 2011 in terms of game design so i can't really yeah. help, you know three developer team that much for it i feel like so my biggest criticism was in trying to figure out how to do the crafting stuff um like okay so you need there's a lot of things where it builds upon itself so you need to build this in order to build this and you need to build this in order to, to get these things together and having played a lot of games that have craft i mean what game doesn't have crafting now and i've played a lot of factorio which is like they should sell that knowledge to corporations <laughs> because it's so streamlined it's hard to go back to a system where you can't just click something and have it like build a tree for you so you know exactly how to build stuff like i was like oh i got this diamond what does a diamond do just have to like scroll through my list of all the different recipes that's not fun that's not i i can understand why you wouldn't like that takes a lot of extra work to build that in but that's a thing that 10 years later we've become accustomed to mm -hmm. having like exquisitely built crafting systems like the the com like the design language is there that just wasn't there in the same way in 2011 same with storage for the i mean like as much as i said the pocket dimension was an interesting idea like you're still ultimately like scattering things out you're manually clicking things and then putting them on the ground or like shift clicking them to drop them underneath you and it's just like i want organization and i want it to be automatic and i don't want to have to build a system of chests i don't want to you know put things into like columns of i just want you to have a system and just let me automatically dump everything into that system so i know what it all is and it's all uh, universal it's just like that's it's really obvious stuff um well let me ask well, you it's obvious this. to us now right yeah it's less obvious, obvious now then. right how how much of the 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 game did you spend sitting there smashing the space button smashing this uh is that that's the that's the, the advanced time button, button right yeah that's how you're you're regaining your mana or your hp without spending any like uh so you're just sitting there like advancing the turn and just I, I used, I, I think I maybe hit that pretty often uh, until I realized that there's a digest button. Right, that's for your, but that's if you wanted to like waste your press's resources. <laughs> like, but if you're, but, but for like mana and stuff, it's just like you kind of want to keep that stuff for like when you really need it. And so it's just, the, I sold wine because I didn't have any use right. for mana. Yeah, yeah. When I when I was not using mana, I was selling all that stuff. But like later, like once I got to the Dreadmore the first time and I realized how important potions were in particular, like yeah. uh, I'm just like, I, I want to hoard this stuff. And so I'm just going to like basically smash space in order to like, and it's just 
that is not a fun like waiting as a mechanic is not fun and they kind of build that in so that you're you should be able to just hold it down right or like wait mm-hmm. until until some uh, an enemy enters your view advance time or yeah. until your health is full so i don't know that that really was not a fun thing never has a space bar been smashed so much and so often <laughs> for so, so few mana points it's it was bad yeah that's kind of like a, a it's a potential flaw in that you'd say the you never want the optimal strategy to be just wait and do nothing and like that is absolutely optimal strategy is go fight a single monster run away wait till you've recovered to full health like that is like if you wanted to tr- truly grind your way through this dungeon like you could do it safer but I don't want to do it safe. I want to do it fun. Well, I mean, that'd be true if you weren't spending, like it takes about an hour on average to complete a floor without the the, the kind of the minification mode. And so like, you're talking about 10 hours. And so if you're like at, at, on floor nine, like you're just going through like blasting open doors without full health and like, just kind of like rolling the dice. You're like, if you die from that, you're just like, oh, wow, I lost nine hours of my life uh, doing this. Um, <laughs> and it has to be fun. And the, the fun level, like, I started another playthrough recently and I'm just like, you know what? Now that we're done with this podcast, I think I'm gonna go ahead and call it good. Like it's kind of it was it was charming for a while, but I think I get it now. And um We got uh, a lot we got a lot more uh roguelikes to get through. Right, next exactly. Year, so don't want to burn yourself out too fast. Yeah, another kind of uh logistics item for the podcast is that I don't think us three will have all the time in the world to beat every single one of these roguelikes because there's there's a a, a wide uh, distribution of really how much time you know you can spend to get to the final boss equivalent or whatever for for each of these. And in some cases, you know, we might see everything in 15 minutes. In other cases, it might be like 80 hours before we get to whatever sort of end game state is. So I think as a caveat, we'll you know probably aim for somewhere around like an hour-ish of like gameplay time for each one of these, just to get a, a good sense of what it is. And who knows if we like it, we might, uh, we might play more. And I think some of these- or at least we... an hour minimum. Yeah, you yeah, said an think... hour? <laughs> That's a tutorial, you know, in some cases. Yeah, um, but, uh, but in some cases we've played uh, some of these games a lot already. So I think we have some, some pretty well-formed opinions on them. Um, do we have any final thoughts about Dreadmore? before we, we we move on i'm expi- i'm excited now that we have a base that we can kind of grow from like this is the 2011 and now we get to see it kind of develop over time like right now we like for instance we're we're like noting things like 1 hour per floor on a 10 floor system how does that change over time because it seems like everything now is like these maximum like an hour you know 40 minutes for I'm, a yeah, complete I'm comparing run it and to- so you know, 80s, 80s. yeah, exactly. right. We're just <laughs> exactly. like you're blasting through that, or or a slate spire run. I mean, like you know, all these things are just um, you know, right. dicey we dungeons. Do a full, full uh, run in an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And so it seems like we, everything's kind of shrunk down to this. Like here is a gameplay window, and we we want you to have a complete experience in the amount of time that you might have a gameplay window. Whereas this this game very much did not uh, have that as a consideration. Maybe a floor in the window, but like even then, like we said, it was way too repetitive and not enough variation by a floor to really keep you in there till the end. At least me. Well, the good news is that it uh, as as of the first episode, Dreadmore is our number one highest rated game for the podcast. <laughs> We're slapping it up on the rankings. 
Um, you can find uh, our rankings uh, and many more stuff that we have uh, up on uh, our website that we have, which is uh, the Going Rogue Gaming Podcast or Grog Pod, G-R-O-G-P-O-D uh, dot zone, because everyone needs a, a great uh, vanity domain. Um, there you can find all of our rankings and you can find links to previous episodes and all that good stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, Scott, I'm going to have to disagree with you here. I think this is actually, I mean, you said this is the best we've played so far. I'm actually going to say this is the worst one we've reviewed yet. Ooh, wow. Too true, Colin. Too true. I think I'm just, uh, I, I'm, I must be cursed by Weirdables right now to, to they've, give it they've, the, they've uh, the positive infected your brain. Yes. <laughs> Okay, uh, I think that does it for us. Uh, we'll see uh, all of you gentle listeners in the next episode. Alrighty, cool. cool. <laughs> see you then. <laughs> <laughs>